0: What you learn over 15 years is each individual decision does not matter as much as the coherence of the grand vision. So I can let one go, even if I think that's not the right decision, that's the wrong decision. But on this particular decision, Jason cares more. So since he cares more about this thing, let him have it. Like I can just say, (laughs) I don't think that's the way to go, but so what?
2: Dan, welcome back. This is the second part of our interview with David Heinemeyer Hansen. And this week, we will be talking about relationships. And as you know, Dan, we have been in a relationship for a very long time. Yeah. I mean, it's getting to the point where I should probably put a ring on it. (laughs) Is that accurate?
1: You know, I'm not going to ask. Only do it if you want to do it. You know,
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, like we originally thought to reach out to DHH to talk about this idea of bootstrapping versus startups. And we got curious about the backstory behind, you know, his business partner, Jason, and how they cut an equity deal. And as we started talking about these things, David had so many interesting thoughts about relationships, business partnerships, and how to think about them in the context of your own business. So we thought we'd run this one separately because these thoughts are pretty fascinating. Anything you want to add before we just click the tape?
2: I'm just thinking about what to get you for our anniversary. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) Over here doing a little shopping at Tiffany's. (laughs) Two partners went in search of gold as friendly as could be.
0: One was young and one was old. I mean, before we started working on Basecamp, I had worked with Jason for a number of years prior. He had hired me originally back in, I think, 2001 to build the product with him called SingleFile, which was an online system for managing your book collection, which was, a, again, a web version of an earlier FileMaker Pro app that he had made in the late 90s. That had some modest success that ultimately didn't end up going anywhere, and we continued to do client work on the side. And then when we started working on Basecamp...
1: At that point, did he consider you a partner or was he just paid?
0: No, I was still just being paid. At the point of when we started in Basecamp, I was still being paid off through 37 singles. But I think the way equity and so on works is it's a lot about indispensability. (laughs) When we started working on Basecamp and when we first launched it, there wasn't anything there. Like when we launched Basecamp in 2004, yes, it was growing, but I mean, compared to today's standards and even to standards of that day, like it was pathetically small still. Like it was not like we went from nothing to a million dollar business at all. It was making hundreds of dollars in the beginning, right? So I think those are the <laughs> moments where those discussions can happen. And then the other aspect of it was I was the sole technical person. Not only did I program the whole thing, I ran the whole thing, I set it up, I did basically everything on the technical side, in addition to being involved on the business side. So for me, the answer in early 2005, when we got to the point of like, me becoming a partner in the company, was what happens if I walk away? right? If Jason can just hire some other schmuck off the street and plug in instead of me, then I'm not getting any equity. That's basically how it works. So I had to put enough into it that Jason would feel like the company would be worse off from not having me involved, even if he had to concede some of the equity for it, than basically telling me, oh, well, thank you for the labor. I'll hire someone else to do the work now. So there's not like a straight manual for this stuff.
2: Who are some of your mentors? You know, that's a very high pressure, high stakes situation. I mean, probably wasn't that high stakes back then because there wasn't a lot to lose, but if you look at the company now, you think back and you think, wow, that was a really high stakes pressure cooker. How did you deal with that? And who are some of the people that you went to for advice?
0: I've never been big on live action figure mentors as people (laughs) actually talking to. I had a lot of mentors over the years. They all didn't know that they were my mentor. They um, were all people I was reading. And as you say, at the time it was not that high stake. At the time, Basecamp was not; it couldn't even pay our salaries, our very very meager salaries at the time, right? So there wasn't a big economic engine at the time. That once there is that, like the book is somewhat closed, at least in terms of major equity split ups. Once there's anything of real value, then you can't carve it up. So there wasn't anything of real value, which actually meant that it wasn't that high stakes. For me, the alternative was well, okay, like if, if this is not going to happen, not the end of the world. I'll go off and. Make my own thing. I'll go off and start another company. I had lots of other options. This was also at the time where Ruby on Rails was starting to take off. And I was like, hey, plenty of high-end consulting stuff for me to do. And I'd actually make considerably more money doing that even then becoming a partner at Basecamp at the time, which didn't exactly pay off in droves because again, there wasn't anything there. It's kind of similar, like if you look back at, I think Apple originally had a partner who helped up draw the papers for the incorporation who owned like 5% of the company or something. And he sold right. it back to them for like $10,000 or something. And you go, well, today that would have been worth like $50 billion. Yeah, I mean, but if you could just look back in time, like, i just picked the right lottery number for the Powerball. Like, if I knew yesterday what the numbers were going to be today, I mean, those kind of mind games, I don't find very compelling or helpful. or They don't sway me in any way. So, and they
2: discount all the work that goes into making the company what it is today, Yeah, right? that, that too,
0: of course, <laughs> right? Like, it was not, like, presumably so, that I could have just joined the company and then sat on my ass for 12 years and then expected this thing to grow into what it is today. I mean, I still had to put in 12 years of effort to be where we are today. The base mechanics are, like, you have to have these conversations when the thing is not worth anything and when it looks like it might be worth literally less than nothing that you're going to lose the time and the energy you put into it and you're not going to get anything out of it. That's the only time when these negotiations are truly open. It's
1: interesting too, because somehow though, I still feel like people screw this one up a lot. And I mean, I think probably I have too in the past, like you walk into a room like that and you're asking for ownership, you have the potential to offend somebody that you had other things going on with Jason too. So like you could have potentially screwed those things up. I mean,
0: there's different ways of doing it. It wasn't really adversarial. Like I just said, Hey... I need to figure out what I want to do with my life. And if the two of us are going to continue to work together, I want it to be as partners. If you don't want that to happen, totally cool. Like That's up to you. I'll pack my bags and do something else. I think that that's the key to summoning the courage to doing these things is to realize that you do have options and there are other things that you could do. And then in advance, making yourself okay with the outcomes. I think that's one of the tricks that I've employed frequently to protect my own happiness is to make sure that I am okay with as wide of an array of alternative options as possible. If you set your minds on like there's only one outcome here that can make me happy, you're in a shitty negotiation. I mean, that's not even a negotiation point. That's just an invitation to be taken advantage of. Because then you have no leverage. You have no options. And if you don't have any of those things, actually, basically, you don't have anything to negotiate with, right?
1: So Ian and I have been partners for eight or nine years. I can't even remember. It's been so long. For a majority of that time, we've lived on different continents. I'm curious as to why you think you guys have made it work. And what have been the biggest challenges? The things that you guys have had fights about, or
0: well, I mean, we started out. So the formation of Jason and I's partnership was remote. I wrote him from Copenhagen, Denmark. We didn't. We started working together just over email and I am. I didn't even speak on the phone with him for the first six months. Then we continued to work together for three years before I got to Chicago and moved to the US. So a lot of the time we've spent working together, I'd say the majority of the time we've spent working together has not been in an office together. I'd say probably less than 1% of the time actually has been spent working together in the same physical location. Even when we were in the same city, I lived in Chicago full-time for a number of years and I didn't come to the office most days. So we had set it up that that was what worked for us. Like Basecamp and 37signals was from its inception a remote organization and that worked very well. I think the other part of it is we had a very compatible outlook on the broad strokes of business, design, technology and the industry. And those cornerstones of consent could carry a lot. And it didn't really matter whether we would squabble over individual features, individual decisions, because it would all boil down in the end to these cornerstones of consent that we had the same outlook and we wanted the same things, very broadly speaking. I think if you don't want the same things, if you have someone who is in a grand hurry to get rich quick and want to get on a VC treadmill and so on, and you have someone else who wants to build a long-term business that they can keep in control of and grow old with, well... That's not a partnership that's likely to pan out for that long. You might be able to collaborate and grit your teeth for a number of years. You're not going to do it for the 15, 16 years that Jason and I have now worked together. You got to do things and with people, I think, where you have a fundamental shared understanding of which way the world should spin. When that's the case... I mean, I'm even hard-pressed to remember any major breaking moments with Jason and I where we're like, oh, this is impossible. We can't figure it out. We can't get to the same point. The funny thing is usually when that seems the worst, when we're arguing the fiercest, it's about the smallest things. (laughs) It's about sort of an individual feature where we're coming at it from very different perspectives and we value different things. And we're like, until we illuminate why it is that we value different things. And once we see that, we go, oh, yeah, okay, I guess you're you're right. You're right. Okay, let's find something else. Or we just let it go. So what you learn over 15 years is each individual, decision. decision does not matter as much as the coherence of the grand vision so i can let one go even if i think that's not the right decision that's the wrong decision but on this particular decision jason cares more so since he cares more about this thing let him have it like i can just say (laughs) i don't think that's the way to go but so what we're gonna make another what hundred thousand decisions over the next 30 years How much is it going to matter that this one went Jason's way, even though I thought that was the wrong way to go? Not one iota, right?
2: What's interesting is with these partnerships, I don't know if this is the truth for you too, David, but... You know, I've been with Dan longer than I've been with my female partner, right? (laughs) But I think I learned a lot from my business partnership and how that's going to make me successful in other relationships, right? Because like you said, I mean, you kind of got to have a similar outlook on life. You kind of have to have a similar trajectory. You know, all these things I feel like are pretty good training for being in an intimate relationship, which is kind of weird. Don't (laughs) tell
1: that to your partner, Ian, like, oh, I've been here before. I've seen (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) On top of
2: that, these relationships, you know, you're talking about them being very long-lasting. And you're talking about also what it takes to make that happen. And it's not squabbling over small things. It's having a long term view on these different ideas. You know, how have your and Jason's relationship changed from day one to now that you guys, you know, have your own families and whatnot? Do you talk just as much?
0: It's quite similar. I think most of the time we had a relationship that was a lot about sort of the work we did together. When you're already spending not eight hours together, but eight hours online at the same time and constantly pinging things back and forth. I don't know if you also need to add on like another eight hours of sort of friendship beyond that. At least we didn't need to. Perhaps some people start out with their business partner and their BFFs and they do everything together, even outside of work. That's a very intense relationship. I don't know how many people can find like that true soulmate that they can literally spend 16 hours a day with for years on end. I think that is exceptionally rare and you're playing very long odds if you think that that's what's going to happen. You're much more likely to find someone on either side of it. Either you're going to be business associates and you can do that in the best of ways without also spending like all your free time together. I think it actually is more durable that way.
1: I have a question about long odds, which is something that Ian and I failed at, which is to stay excited about a business for more than five years. Like, how do you get pumped to come to work still? How do you approach staying excited about the business?
0: I think that's how a lot of businesses go astray. Like, they find a good thing and then they fuck it up because the founders get bored. And I remember how maybe I read a bunch of stuff about it, but I knew that being a risk from the start. So we do a fair number of things to explicitly deal with that, because you have sort of on the one hand, a lot of times once a business finds a good market fit, like the best thing it can do is just churn out small iterations and like tweaking things. Right. And on the other hand, for both Jason and I, like that wouldn't have kept us excited for 15 years. you got to find a balance where. Your experiments and your changes, like they don't fuck over the good thing you got going. The easiest thing you can do is screw up a good thing. For us, we've kept busy with a lot of other things too. That just base cam itself It's not the only thing, like we did a bunch of other products for a while. We did high-rise, we did campfire, we did backpack. So that was one phase of the company. And then in the entire length of it, we've also done things like write a couple of books and continue to write in general, do workshops, do all sorts of extracurricular activities to keep ourselves excited. I've had... Things on the technical side, Ruby and Rails pushing that forward, having sort of a lot of things and a lot of balls in the air. And then in later stages of the company, once we knew that oh shit, this camp thing is actually huge and it's continuing to grow. Once our focus became that, then making base camp the best thing that it could be, even in revolutionary, risky ways, as like hey, let's rewrite the whole damn thing twice. Not a whole lot of businesses would do that. We chose to do that, and that was in part. I mean. You can rationalize it from a lot of different angles where they can all be true at the same time. But one of the angles certainly was we want to stay entertained. And that sounds vain and it sounds like non-serious business-like, but I actually think it's an incredibly serious business-like. I think Basecamp as a whole company is far better off when it's able to sustain both Jason and I's interest.
1: Yeah, you know, I think this is something that we've sort of said in less elegant ways over the years that you know, finding a business that has a big lifestyle component – to it kind of gets laughed away a lot of times in the business press. And I love this perspective that like, look, this is a sharp business idea to build something that you and your partner can stay focused on for decades and build generational wealth with. You're going to need to have a lifestyle element that keeps you passionate about it. Yep. That's win-win. Why would we make fun of this idea? How does this idea get made fun of? What's happening in the business world? So to round
2: off this episode, we asked DHH to play our favorite game over at the Tropical NBA, which is donate an idea. (laughs) Or in this case, what does David see as a potential opportunity for anyone wanting to start their own business here in 2016? His answer is pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. And I don't think David knew he was playing this game either. I think this is us being jerks in the post editing. (laughs) Let's play the game anyway. And So here it is. David, I have a final question for you. Ian and I like read your books, you know, a long time ago. You guys seem to see things, at least in our eyes, before other people saw them. You've written about like sort of the remote work movement and the distributed team movement and see that as the future. I'm curious, like a lot of the people that listen to our show, they're like in year one of their journey. Are there things that you guys are seeing that's changing in the entrepreneurial community that you think are opportunities for people that are looking to start their next business?
0: I think part of it is that like these big shifts, these big paradigm shifts, like introduction of the iPhone 2007 or introduction of the Internet or stuff like that, they're very rare. Like if you're going to wait around until like the next major wave hits and you see it before everyone else, you're going to grow old and better in the meantime. There's plenty of businesses all the time where they just need to be done better. It doesn't have to be you inventing the wheel again. It doesn't have to be this breakthrough. I mean, Basecamp, like, how the fuck is that a breakthrough of anything? Like, it's a collection of tools that help people make progress on projects. It's not exactly rocket science, but is something people still need and they'll continue to need it. And we try to do it better than the other solutions that are out there. Like it's not that magic recipe, secret sauce kind of thing. So waiting around for that or waiting for someone to tell you that, I think that's where the real mistake is.
1: You've mentioned that you're like an exceptional copier, like that you see things, you really enjoy them, and then you put it out in a different context.
0: Yes, I do like to recontextualize things in in other ways, right? We see something, oh, that's really cool. Like I should do that for this, right? I should take that idea that's over here in this context and then I just use it over here. I do that all the time in my writing and in my code and so on. Get inspired by things that are adjacent to your particular thing because if you just copy something that's within your same industry and so on, I mean, yeah, okay, like that's just going to be a copy. But if you copy something from another industry and apply it somewhere else, all of a sudden it's magic. I mean, if you even just take run-of-the-mill production values for web applications and apply them to, like, I just paid my property taxes today <laughs> and for Chicago and you just go like, holy shit, that is the worst web app I've ever seen. <laughs> like, you could be in the bottom 25% of skill in the major tech community and you'd make an app that's 10 times as good as this.
1: How would you do that in writing? I like this kind of idea of not trusting your own instinct so much, but you trust your instinct in a way, but you don't depend on it. Well, in writing, I
0: I often do it just by, like, I'm reading a fair amount of philosophy right now. And you could just go like, hey, Stoicism is one of the things that I've latched on to. And all of the main texts are like 2,000 plus years old. And you go like, wow, there's a lot of interesting ideas. Like, I can apply a lot of the same ways of argument to when I talk about technology and about a framework. (laughs) So Marcus Aurelius has certain things to say about this sort of grand notion of life and how you should live it. And then, hey, let me repurpose some of those thoughts and apply them to how an entrepreneur in the tech business can think about his business. Two partners went in search of gold as friendly as could be.
2: One was young and one was old. And so, Dan, I loved hearing DHH's thoughts on how to start a new business in 2016. It kind of falls along the lines of what we've been preaching, which is rip, pivot, and jam. You don't have to come up with something new, you just
1: have to be able to innovate on an existing idea and something that people want. Yeah, and I love this idea because it's both easier and smarter. You know, because you don't have to rely on yourself being some super innovative visionary or whatever. It's just like, look, like the marketplace already likes podcasts. People listen to podcasts. So I'm just going to do a podcast, but in my own unique way. You know, what? you just need to have that little spark of inspiration, not some giant revolutionary vision. Yes. Whenever I try and come up with a new product, I remind myself of the modern cat condo
2: (laughs) that we designed (laughs) for one of our earlier businesses. And it was the biggest flap ever. And it was because of a brand new product. People weren't used to seeing a product like that. Now, what was a successful product was a twist on a litter box into modern furniture. Everybody needs a litter box. They just like to see it in a
1: new, innovative way. That product was a hit. Right. By the way, I just got to mention on the philosophy front, I don't think it's a coincidence that so many entrepreneurs nowadays in the blogosphere are talking about philosophy. They're going back and reading foundational, canonical text because I think in both disciplines, entrepreneurship and philosophy, you're asked to revisit your initial assumptions and to go back to first principles in order to figure out what's going to work. I think it's really cool. It's exciting for me. And for those listeners that don't know, Dan,
2: you got your degree in philosophy. So either you did it backwards, or this is going to be a good
1: thing for you in the future. But you did spend four or five years. (laughs) I think all that it shows is I was committed to being unemployed for a very long time. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) Ian, next week on the show, we are going to be talking about not building businesses, but building wealth, how to protect your money, how to grow it through investments, and how to plan for retirement. Obviously, a big priority for entrepreneurs is building that generational wealth. And that's going to be our topic next week at the podcast. Yeah, buddy. Looking forward to it. All right. See you next Thursday morning. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.